This is a question we all face. When we make decisions, we innately calculate the risk involved, what we might lose or gain in the decision, and we ask whether it's worth it. Now, there are occasions when we determine that our conscience or our faith necessitate a decision regardless of what we have to lose. But there are also occasions where the fallout and the potential loss for doing the thing we know to be right is so great that we're tempted to go against our own convictions, our own faith. So we're at this place in the story where David's dedication to the right path is going to nearly ruin his life. It's going to cost him a lot. In fact, he nearly loses his life on many occasions. Last week, we saw David risk his life to defeat Goliath. Now, Goliath wasn't only a kind of circus attraction, like a giant that you ooh and all at. He was the enemy of God. The enemy of God's people, Satan incarnate. And naturally, the victory earned David a a quick, instant celebrity status. But his victory over Goliath also spoke beyond itself to something we haven't drawn attention to yet. And that is that behind the scenes, David has already been anointed as king in place of Saul. This is going to get David in real trouble. The battle with Goliath is the first proof of David's calling. And as these proofs add up, David, uh, Saul, is going to turn against David. Now, who is this going to most directly affect? Who has the most to lose from David being anointed king? Well, Saul, of course. But even more than Saul, it's going to affect his family, most specifically Jonathan, the heir to the throne. And that's what makes it all the more surprising that Jonathan is the first one to fully align himself with David. Did you notice as Jan read that Jonathan gave David his robe, his armor, his sword, all of these things he handed over to David. All of this is symbolic to the effect that Jonathan already knows David is the true king. And he is relinquishing his rights. He's saying, God has chosen you, not me, not my family. He's surrendering to the way of God. So both David and Jonathan in their own way are showing us how to do the right thing even when it costs you a lot. So David, and David foreshadows Jesus in lots of ways throughout his life. David has to pass through a kind of death over and over again before he gets to the throne that God has promised him, doesn't he? Just like Jesus suffers death on the way to resurrection and his own throne as king of the cosmos. And Jonathan, in order to devote himself to David, is going to have to turn against his own father, the current king, who becomes eaten up with envy toward David. And as Jonathan Jonathan does this, he becomes this picture to us of what it means to follow Jesus. So in one of several places where Jesus talks about the costs of following him, here's what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father or mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, 
he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now this sounds so harsh, doesn't it? Hate your father and your mother, your children, even your own life. What does this mean, Jesus? Aren't there moments in all our lives similar to what happens to Jonathan where we're forced to choose who we're going to follow as Lord of our lives? Whether we're going to follow our own selves as the Lord of our lives? You know, Jonathan easily could have fought for his right to the throne. It was his by right. He could have gathered an army more quickly than David and fought against David for his right to the throne. Jonathan could have fought to be Lord of his own life. We often have to choose whether to follow ourselves, our father, our mother, our siblings, our our children, whether to make them into idols, or friends, spouses, etc. The possibilities are endless. Or we have to choose to follow Christ, the true king, I'm convinced that Jesus uses this language because there are such occasions where by the world's standards, our devotion to Christ will require something that looks like a disregard for family or friends or others. This is the place Jonathan comes to. To support the true king, he's forced to work against his own father and How could it look like anything else other than a hatred for his father to go follow King David? I think this is what Jesus is saying. We all come up against this in our lives. Now, before we go anywhere else in the story, we need to let the story function as a kind of mirror for us and for our lives. We need to look into it and we need to ask, what is God calling me to give up to follow him? What has it cost you to have to follow Jesus? To name Him as your Lord and as your King? What are the parts of yourself that you have had to part ways with? Where like Jonathan, you've had to give up something and say, no, this is the true King. Who are the people you've had to part ways with? Have you had to suffer the pain of watching someone else walk away from Christ? away from what's true, good, and beautiful. What is it currently costing you to follow Jesus? The first thing we need to hear this morning is that this is an inherent part of doing good and of following Jesus in the world. There's a cost. It's so inherent that if you don't sense that it's costing you anything, then you should be concerned. Because Jesus is telling us that it always will cost us something. There's the cost of loneliness sometimes. There's the cost of being misunderstood. The cost of losing relationship to gain another. These are part and parcel of the commitment of following Christ. Now, I think the rest of our story of David and Jonathan deals with this question. How do we suffer that cost? 
How do we sustain the ongoing cost of following Jesus as king, of doing good when we know it's going to require us to give up something that's valuable to us? I want to show you two ways I see in this story that we bear such loss, that we sustain such loss in following Christ. The first way we bear it is in friendship. In friendship. David and Jonathan commit to each other in the form of a covenant. It tells us this multiple times, that they made a covenant with one another. It's a commitment that is similar to the way marriage is described in the Bible. And it's their friendship that sustains both of them on this path of righteousness. So listen again to Jonathan's encouragement of David when David's life is in danger once again. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David. And he strengthened his hand in God. Notice here, their friendship isn't self-absorbed. Their friendship isn't merely about themselves. It's built to sustain their faith. Jonathan strengthened his hand in God. Do you have friends like this? Who strengthen your hand in God when you are suffering and when you're struggling to hold on to your own faith? To do right and good? If you don't have friends like this, you will find faith nearly impossible to sustain. We're built to need this and to have it. Years later, when, jo- when David hears that Jonathan has died, David weeps. And he says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. This friendship between David and Jonathan It was clearly more than the occasional guys getting together to have a beer. As David says when he calls Jonathan his brother, their relationship was more like family. David and Jonathan's committed friendship is the earliest example we have of this entire tradition, Christian tradition, of deeply intimate same-sex friendships. Now, As strange as this may seem to sound to us, and we're about to get into some um, tenuous territory, shall I say. Until at least the 16 to 1700s, there was this common tradition in the church of men and women, same-sex relationships, committing to lifelong friendships. On some occasions, there was even a liturgy called brother or sister making, where strong friends committed to treat one another as if they were family. Now, there are barriers in our culture to our ability to read and receive this story in all its richness. So I want to point out one modern myth that threatens the kind of friendship we are seeing between David and Jonathan. And this myth is that all intimate relationships involve sex. This is the myth. That all intimate relationships involve sex. So one of the ways this story has been read more recently is as an early example of committed gay love. Now, I am happy to have conversations about where our church stands on this. I I do believe it's very complicated and there's lots of nuancing to it. 
But regardless of where any of us stand, this interpretation does damage to this story, and it also diminishes our capacity for real same-sex friendship. And so I want to deal with both of these. It does damage to the story, but it also diminishes our capacity for real, intimate, same-sex friendship. So let me start with the way that it damages the story. It damages the story because it falsely assumes that the author of the story would approve of this. While it also forces our own modern agenda on the passage. So when David later commits adultery with Bathsheba, how does the author feel about that? David is utterly condemned. Because it's against the faith of the author. It's against Old Testament law, and it's against the whole concept of sexual ethics in Israel. If the relationship between David and Jonathan were sexual, it too would have been condemned, not celebrated. Whether you see this as right or wrong today, there was no room in Israel's ethics to celebrate this kind of relationship. You can't force your reading on it. So this view does damage to the story. It misreads it. But then it also diminishes our own capacity for the type of friendship David and Jonathan share. Now, let me tell you what I mean here. At least ever since Sigmund Freud came on the scene, Most people in our part of the world have come to believe that what we all want and what we all need at our base instincts and desires is sex. This is what Freud theorized. And then coinciding with Freud came Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Do you know about this? The the, the, uh, pyramid that illustrates our needs for food and, and breathing, our need for relationship and all these kinds of things. Well, Right there with food and breathing and the physiological needs is another need. Does anyone know what this one is? I'm trying to see how many people I can get to say sex right now. You're welcome, parents. Right there, along with food and breathing, is sex. These views have become so ubiquitous, it's nearly impossible for us to imagine any type of intimate relationship apart from sex. Life without marriage, think about this in our culture, life without marriage has become readily accepted. Life without sex is a complete mystery. Can you really do that? Monks and nuns, they're a mystery to us. Unmarried people having lots of sexual liaisons, we get that, that happens. What's happened over time is we have lost a category for committed, intimate friendships like that of David and Jonathan apart from sex. So I can remember growing up, my closest male friendships were prefaced with, I'm not gay. And there's even the three pats on the back that aren't limited to southern parts of America that clearly signal, I'm not gay. Here's one of the problems with all of this. It's not this way everywhere. It's not this way in the rest of the world. Some of you know it's common practice in Africa for male friends to hold hands, right? In public, to walk and hold hands. I I traveled to Africa once with two good friends, 
you know, Africans do this, and, and it's normal. Americans go there and do this, and, and we try to make each other as uncomfortable as we can by reaching for each other's hands. Now, in the early 2000s in the U.S., we started a resettlement program to help a group called the Lost Boys of Sudan. These were boys who were orphaned or displaced during the Civil War of Sudan in the late 1980s and the 1990s. And when they arrived, many of the boys would hold hands together as a sign of friendship. This is what they did in their own culture. They continued to do it once they arrived in America. But quickly, people began to tell them if they did that, they would be seen as homosexual. So eventually, there was a televised interview between several of these boys and the news anchor Tom Brokaw. And in it, one of the boys asked Brokaw if this was the case. And when he responded, yes, that's true, a foster parent of one of these children said the look in the lost boys' faces was one of intense and painful dismay. The boys began to hold hands only in extremely private circumstances. Do you see what's happened here? The problem with seeing David and Jonathan as a a picture of committed gay love is that it does damage to the story and it leaves no room in our world for such intimate friendships to exist apart from sex. Such a relationship is not possible apart from sex. That's the way we see it. And much more than sex, the other problem is These are the exact kind of relationships we desperately need. Committed, lifelong devotion and friendship in relationships that don't necessarily involve sex. Wesley Hill, I want to introduce you to this person. He's a theologian and writer. He's written two books. One's called Washed and Waiting, and there's another called Spiritual Friendship. And in the first, Washed and Waiting, he says when he was in high school, he knew two things for certain. One, he was a Christian and he wanted to follow Jesus. Two, he was attracted to men. He said he had known this for a long time. And he says there's nothing he can identify in his past that made him this way. It was natural. This, is, this was his desire. Now, he knew at the time there were churches where his desires could be fully affirmed, where he could go and pursue those desires. But he said after studying Scripture and the history of the church, he was convinced this was not the way God intended for human flourishing. So he committed himself to celibacy in faith that God would provide him with companionship and something more profound and more necessary than sex. Now, Hill is in his late 30s now. He is a professor at an Episcopal school in Pittsburgh. And here's what Hill says. He says it's actually spiritual friendship. The friendship and family he finds in the church that provide him with the strength he needs to sustain his calling to celibacy. Hill, in his late 30s, often lives with families, helps raise children. He's a godfather to to multiple children. And he'll live with these families and care for the children alongside the parents. And he says it's these friendships that have helped him sustain his calling to celibacy. Without people to love and be loved by, he says, I don't imagine faith is very sustainable. This is what the story of David and Jonathan says to us. Without each other, 
without friendship, we cannot endure the ongoing, unexpected costs that inevitably come when we follow Jesus as our King, our Lord. This is why Jesus insists that we love one another in the passage that we heard from the Gospel of John. And it's also why Jesus elevates our friendships to the level of family. We're not only friends in the church. We are brothers and sisters united in the blood of Christ. We're made one by His blood. We're the household of God. We are the family of faith. So let me ask you, have you been converted, born again into Christ and this family of God? And if not, why not? Let's talk. This is a family that is thicker than blood. That can be the source of all your needs for intimacy and faithfulness. And if you have been converted to this, are you treating this body as your family? Are you going other places and looking for satisfaction and love? You can lean on the church for the strength you need to follow Jesus. Do you believe this? And I wonder for us, Church of the Lamb, if it's possible for people like Wesley Hill to live out a calling of lifelong celibacy and still feel that they have a family. This is what we need to be as a church. Where that calling is possible. Now, how do we bear the cost that comes with a life of faithfulness to Christ? One, through friendship. Intimate friendship. But there is one other way. Very quickly, we bear it in prayer. Now, we should read these chapters in 1 Samuel and think to ourselves, no wonder the Psalms are so intense. Turn after turn, David is running for his life. He does nothing wrong, and yet he's always having to run for his life, escaping by the skin of his teeth. He has the chance on two occasions to kill his nemesis, but he doesn't. In fact, David even feels guilty when he only cuts off a small piece of fabric from Saul's clothing. How dare I touch the Lord's anointed, he says. You know, David was a real victim. He was innocent. This is the kind of person today who lives out the rest of their lives angry and bitter, recounting their trauma over and over and over again, never able to let go of it and forgive. Blaming others for who they've become. Except that's not who David becomes, is it? That's not who we know David to be. Instead, David becomes an exemplar of trusting God in the wilderness, of loving one's enemies even when your life is threatened, of forgiveness. How does David do this? The Psalms are the proof of how he does it. He does it in prayer. This man bears it all before God, all the anger. He bears all his anger, all his fear, and all his doubt. You look there, and there's no wonder there's not an emotion, a human emotion that can't be found because he experienced it all at the hands of Saul. And he bore it all before God. But in the end, David's life, instead of becoming a life of bitterness, becomes a life of praise. 
Is this what we think of when we think of David? The Psalms that he wrote in praise to God? Prayer is what sustains David through all the cost of following God. Now, we need to ask ourselves, do we pray? I mean, do we really pray the way David prayed? Because this is one of the crucial ways we sustain a life of loss in following Jesus. We pray. We bear it all before God. And in that, God shapes us into people who can trust Him and believe in Him even when it's really difficult. Now, David and Jonathan, in the end, both point us to Christ. They point us to this one who's invited us to become his friends. Jesus is the one who prayed his way all the way to the cross from God, will you please take this cup from me? To Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There are costs to any way of life that we choose to live. But the difference in following Jesus is that while you may pay a lot, and while there may be many costs, you are promised the deepest satisfaction, the deepest friendship, and on the other side, everything you thought you ever lost is returned to you, but more so. Why would we not follow Jesus? Why would we not give it all up and follow the true King? That's what this story is about. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen.